of God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, the Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, When it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before you sit, um, let's pray. Lord, we come here as very broken, fragile people filled with anxieties, filled with to-do lists, schedules. Lord, I pray that you will cause our bodies to rest right now. Yes, there are people to see, places to go, things to do, but Lord, slow us down. Slow us down, Lord. We're not in a rush. We're here with you. You want to speak to us. You have something to say to each person today. Help us, Lord, to be listening. 
You're so good. I ask, Lord, that you would speak your message by your Holy Spirit today. Lord Jesus, you said, those who have ears, let them hear. Lord, give us ears to hear your message today. We pray this all in the name of our Lord, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And you can go ahead and have a seat. Well, the first thing I want to show you is there is this letter. Uh, Jet can bring it up for us on the next slide. It's a letter. It's known as a letter to uh, Diognetus. And of course, it's not in the Bible, but it's an early letter that, is, that was found. And it was addressed. The person that wrote it, it's not clear who wrote it. Um, but what they wrote, they wrote to someone about Christianity. And in this specific part of it, they wrote about their fellow Christians. I'm going to read this. And I just want you to, to take this in and think about this, this description of some of the earliest Christians in the world. <clears throat> okay. He said, they, Christians, love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still they are condemned. They are put to death and yet they are brought to life. They are poor and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored and in their very dishonor are glorified. They are defamed and are vindicated. They are reviled and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers, undergoing punishment. They rejoice because they are brought to life. Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. Jack, go ahead and go to the next slide for me, please. We're going to skip that one. Next one. There we go. Paul said, in all, our in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Next slide. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. The author of Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote it, but he's writing to a group of Christians and listen what he says to them. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Wow. So we've just heard three accounts of Christians. We heard the, the letter to Diognetus. We heard Paul. We heard the author of Hebrews. So what do we see in all of these accounts of Christians? What do we see? We see a lot of suffering, don't we? 
Don't we see a lot of suffering? I mean, it's pretty undeniable in here. Confiscation of your property. How many of you want your Christmas gifts tomorrow confiscated and taken away? And yet he talked about their great suffering, being thrown in prison, being dishonored, being looked down on, being talked badly about. And yet in all of these accounts, we see great suffering and yet even greater joy. Even greater joy in the midst of suffering. Now, okay, I said all of that just to ask you this question. What happened that led all of these people to, such, to find such an inexpressible and glorious joy? There's something that happened in history that caused countless people throughout history to find deep joy in their great suffering. What was that? It was Christmas. Christmas. There's a reason Paul could say, in all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And it's the reason that we also, thousands of years later, as Paul's fellow uh, followers of Jesus, can say, in all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Christmas is what brings that to us. Now, okay, what is Christmas? What is Christmas? Christmas is when God's intervening light and love stepped into the world. If we're just going to sum it up very quickly, that's what Christmas is. God's intervening light and love came from there to here. And according to Scripture, why did God's intervening love and light step into the world? Well, Scripture tells us it was to destroy the devil's work. It was to teach us true wisdom. It was to comfort us in all of our troubles, to give us a new heart and a new spirit, to make God's love shine in our hearts, to reveal clearly who God is, to make us a new creation, to redeem us from our empty way of life, to show us our worth to God, to make us friends of God, to make us children of God, to reconcile us to God, to fix all that is broken, to redeem the world from the curse of sin and death, to find us when we were lost, and for God himself to make his home with us. That is what Christmas is about. God's intervening life and love stepping into the world. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? How does God make his home with us through the arrival of God's light and love in flesh and blood, Jesus. Jesus is how all of those things that I just described arrive on our front doorstep. So look, the message of Christmas compels us to do what? It compels us to <coughs> rejoice, to do what we were doing earlier, sing, to feast, to laugh, to celebrate, and to party. That's what we're talking about today. You know, last week we talked about how Advent is a time of waiting for the arrival of Jesus, his birth, but also our anticipation of his coming again. But Christmas is also a time <coughs> of rejoicing. It's a time of rejoicing and celebrating. Now, I want to acknowledge something. I know that Christmas is a time of rejoicing, but I also know that Christmas is a time of deep sadness for a lot of people. I mean, we can talk about rejoicing all we want to, but we all know that life is full of many different emotions, and that is good. That's life. Like I said last, 
Not last week, but last time I spoke. Look at the Psalms. It's filled. Almost all of it is lament and sorrow. So I'm not, this is not meant to dismiss any of the pain and sadness that you might be feeling today. But this is just meant to remind us of the good news that brings great joy. And what is that? That God is with us. That's the good news. That God is with us in our pain, in our hurt, and our sorrow. So, look, on Christmas, we can rejoice. Christmas is about rejoicing in this good news. So, how can we rejoice this Christmas? Well, I just want to focus today just on remembering the difference that it makes. You know, we celebrate Christmas so much, and we get so used to the story. Even when I was reading the teaching text for us today, you might have been like, okay, I know this. I've heard this many, many times. But what we want to do today is we want to remember the difference that that makes for us. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Here's the first main difference that Christmas makes. Because of Christmas, here's what happens. Because of Christmas, we can expect God's providential care. That's the first reason we rejoice. Because of Christmas, we can expect God's providential care. What is providence? It's, just, it's this idea that God is working in the, in the background. God's working in the background in ways that we cannot see or imagine to take care of him, to take care of us, his sheep. So this passage that we read is so associated with the light of Christmas that we tend to gloss over the darkness that it takes place within. You know, we read it and say, okay, Mary, Joseph, shepherds, angels, rejoicing, the end. Where's dinner? But we, we, we forget how dark this was, how uncertain the people in it felt. You know, let's, let's, let's pull the lens out a little bit and just look at everybody in this passage. Who's in charge here? Well, supposedly, Rome is in charge. So God's people are living under Rome, and that's not a very enjoyable rule. That's a very harsh rule, which we can see in this passage. It was a very harsh rule with very harsh taxes. And if you ever forgot about how harsh it was, there were lines and lines and lines of people on crosses to remind you of the rule of Rome. So pulling that back in, we've, we've pulled out a little bit. Now let's go back in, and let's just look at Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary were pledged to be married. They were betrothed, but Mary was pregnant. So when you're betrothed, you have all of the legal rights of marriage, but you're not allowed to consummate that marriage just yet. And yet, Mary was pregnant. And so when we look at why did Joseph bring Mary with him, it's probably because he didn't want to leave her behind to be talked about by all of the people in Nazareth. He didn't want to leave her exposed to the way that people might treat her about her pregnancy before marriage. So we've got all of the gossiping tongues of Nazareth. We've got the harsh rule and reign of Rome where the people of God probably feel forgotten by God. Joseph and Mary were not able to have their baby at home within their community, but had to go about probably 70 miles away to Bethlehem. That doesn't sound very fun. Joseph and Mary were left out in the dark during the birth of their child and had to lay their child where? In a manger. What's a manger? That's a manger. Do you want to lay your newborn in that? What is a manger? It's an animal feeding trough. 
where people feed their animals in their stable, they lay hay in there. There was no, there was no, there was just no room. Why? Because there's a gigantic, do you see what the text said? All of the entire world was going to their hometowns to uh, be enrolled in the census. So there's no space for Mary and Joseph to have their baby. So they lay him in an animal feeding trough. Imagine that. I know that this text is filled with so much light but it takes place within so much darkness. And yet, what did God tell his people about the king he was sending to rescue them? Because we see it in the Old Testament that God actually tells his people that this is going to happen. And what does he say in Micah chapter five, verse two? He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are of old from ancient times. So what does that mean? God knew this was going to happen. God knew that this was going to take place in Bethlehem. And in a bizarre way, he took all of the chaos and the darkness and he orchestrated it and worked it out to bring this amazing moment in history. Leon Morris says this. He says, we should perhaps reflect that it was the combination of a decree by the emperor in distant Rome and the gossiping tongues of Nazareth that brought Mary to Bethlehem at just the time to fulfill the prophecy about the birthplace of the Christ. And he says, God works through all kinds of people to affect his purposes. So look, what I want you to see is that God's providential care does not mean we should never expect darkness. We, we hear that, that God cares for us providentially. And then when things go wrong, we say, well, I thought God cared about me. I thought he was my shepherd. Well, look, God's providential care does not mean we should never expect darkness. It means that we should expect God's light to be with us in the darkness. Amen. Have any of you ever read the book, The Hiding Place Before by Corey Ten Boom? Man, if you haven't, that is an amazing book to read. It, it's, it's a hard book to read, but it's an astounding book to read. It's by Corey Ten Boom. And Corey Ten Boom, um, she and her family lived uh, in Amsterdam during the reign of the Nazis. And, um, you know, as the Nazis were coming and, and taking people off to concentration camps, Corey and her family, um, they were not necessarily one of the people targeted by the Nazis, but they, they felt led by God to hide people who were targeted in their house. And they created elaborate ways to hide people in their house. So that's why it's called the hiding place. Now in the book, you find out that Corey's family was betrayed. Corey's family was taken by the Nazis to a prison. Corey's dad died in prison. Corey and her sister Betsy were eventually taken from prison to prison in Amsterdam and eventually taken all the way to Germany to just a very harsh concentration camp called Ravensbrück, where all of these women were stuck together. So this, this dormitory uh, that was made for about 400 women was stuffed with about 1,400 women with just about eight overflowing toilets and women just crawling over each other to get in and out of their bed. This is just a horrifying, horrifying, dark place to be. 
Now I'm going to read you a passage from The Hiding Place. It's kind of long, so stick with me. Uh, Oh, it's already up there. So you can read along with me. So Corey says this. This is her first night at that concentration camp in Ravensbrook. She says, suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, remember Betsy's her sister. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. We scrambled across the intervening platforms, heads low to avoid another bump, dropped down to the aisle and edged our way to a patch of light. Here, and here another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer. By he, she means God. He's given us the answer before we ask, as he always does. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. We were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving Skivenengen. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed written expressly to Ravensbrück, the concentration camp. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. To one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her. Then around me at the dark, foul-aired room, such as, I said, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between piers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. Now, she goes on to describe how each night, very timidly at first, her and her sister called for worship services for all of those women. And so each night they would get to share the good news and the hope of Jesus in this incredibly dark place. And at first they called for this very timidly, but then they got more bold and called for it more and more. 
Because every night, to their shock and surprise, there were no guards. There was no supervision. What's going on? They wonder, why are there no guards here? Why is, why is why are none of the Nazi guards coming here to watch? Why do we have just total freedom to worship the Lord as we're doing right now? Why do we have total freedom in this concentration camp to do this? Well, she goes on to say, One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood-gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground, and it was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. Well, I found out. That afternoon, she said, there'd been confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes, and they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle it. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. Romans 8.28, one of my favorite verses. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What did Betsy expect God's providential, loving care? That doesn't mean we don't experience darkness, but God guides us through the darkness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are guiding me. I don't just hope for that. We don't just hope that's true. We expect it to be true because God said it's true. And if God said it, we can expect it to come to pass. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We can have the same expectancy that what God says will be just as he said it would be. And God says, I'll take care of you. Take care of you. Christmas is proof of that. And look, you might be here today with a heavy, heavy heart. And the point is not that you should just be happy. That's not the point. I'm not saying you should just be happy or pretend to be happy. The point is that you can expect God to be with you and to care for you because He is and He always will be here. Always. That is the message of Christmas. Because of Christmas, we can expect. God's providential love and care. Because of Christmas, we can do what? We can experience direct access to God's presence. We can experience direct access to God's presence. That's the next point. Now look at verse 10 through 12. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, Daryl Elbach puts it this way. He says, this is why all people can be filled with joy. Jesus may be lying in an animal trough, but heaven is present at his birth. What is the manger? It's the place where heaven and earth touch. Why? Because God has arrived in flesh and blood. And we have access directly to him and Jesus. That's the amazing news. And what did the angels do? Did they just tell him about it? No, they invited the angels to join the party. They said, come on, we're having a party. God's here. Let's go celebrate. What did the, angel, what did the shepherds do? They say, I would rather have a Bible study about that. No, they said, let's go. Let's go see it. Let's go experience it. They accepted the invitation, right? They accepted it. They went. So look, here's what I want you to see. God doesn't just want us to know that he's here. That doesn't do us any good if it stops there. God doesn't want us to just know that he's here. He wants us to experience him personally. That's what God wants for us on Christmas. Now, when I was turning 25, and you might be like, I, I didn't know you were older than 21. I am. And when I turned 25, I was... Uh, living in Waco, Texas at the time because I was going uh, to seminary there. And um, so it was my 21st birthday, June 1st, by the way. And um, so on my birthday, I, uh, I was just sitting there thinking, okay, it's my birthday. What are we going to do? What am I going to do? So I called uh, one friend. Hey, are you, you busy? You want to hang out? Oh, I'm sorry. I can't. I'm busy. And then another friend, hey, uh, what do you got going on today? You want to hang out? Uh, well, uh, I can't. A couple others, no response. So I thought, well, man, well, maybe, you know, my, my best friend at the time, uh, my best friend Emmanuel, he'll, he'll want to uh, hang out with me. But, you know, Emmanuel couldn't. He's still my best friend. I, I say that because now my wife's my best friend. But, you know... Emmanuel uh, couldn't hang out, and so I thought, man, this is the worst birthday ever. I'm just sitting in my kitchen all day with nothing to do. And so Emmanuel, you know, after he got off work, he said, hey, um, what's your favorite restaurant? So I have diabetes now. I can't go and eat Chinese food, but back in, that, in those days, um, it's probably why I had diabetes. I... <laughs> ate a ton of Chinese food. And so uh, I said, Magic China. I want to go to Magic China for my birthday dinner. He said, okay, I'll, I'll pick you up uh, at whatever, 5 p.m. And we'll go to Magic China. And um, so he picked me up. I thought, well, okay, at least this will be fun to have a birthday dinner. And he picked me up. And he drove me to Magic China. And I walked through the door what did I see? All of those friends that I had asked if they could hang out that day were sitting at the table with a birthday cake saying, surprise, happy birthday. 
Now, that was so incredibly special to me. That warmed my heart because nobody had ever thrown me a surprise birthday before in my entire life. That was the first time somebody had thrown me a surprise birthday party. And that was the reason all my friends said no, because they wanted it to be a surprise and we celebrated together. And so I sat at that table and I had the most amazing Chinese food and I ate their ice cream birthday cake that they brought me, opened their presents. Later on, you know, we went and had a, just a pool party in an apartment. It was just so much fun. But look, my friends, they didn't just want me to know that they love me. They wanted me to experience their love for me. How did they do that? How did they get me to experience their love? They literally came to me and brought me to the table. They literally came to me and brought me to the table. Now I have a picture I wanna show you. This is called the Holy Trinity icon and it's by Andre Rublev. I don't know how many icons you've seen. You might not be used to icons, I'm not. Um, but I think this icon is remarkable because this is by uh, a Russian man named Andrei Rublev. And in this, uh, you can't really see it very clearly, I know, but these three figures here sitting at what? At this table, who are they? Well, represented here is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sitting down at a table, enjoying communion and community amongst themselves. Now, that little square at the dinner table, do you see that little square? Now, if you were to actually go to this icon, you would find kind of like a sticky substance on that little square. Why is there a sticky substance on that square? We're not sure, but it's believed, it's widely believed that that sticky substance on that square is because at one time there was a mirror on that square. Why? So that when you pass by this icon and you saw the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sitting together at the table experiencing their Trinitarian love, you would see yourself sitting there with them. This is what Jesus came here for on Christmas so that you could pass by that table, see that you are invited and find yourself like I found myself at that surprise party, <coughs> sitting at that table in wonder and awe and amazement that you found yourself there. And you didn't just stumble there, you were brought there. Someone came to bring you there. Who was it? It was God himself. God himself, because of Christmas, we know that we are not just meant to hear about God, but to experience God. This is personal. This is personal. Christmas makes it personal. Who did Jesus come for on Christmas? Look in the mirror. You. He came for you. So because of Christmas, we can expect God's providential loving care. We can experience direct access to God and because of Christmas, we can treasure being treasured. Because of Christmas, we can treasure being treasured. 
Look at verse 17 through 19. When they had seen him, the shepherds, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Okay, look, even though it wasn't clear to Mary why she was giving birth to the Son of God or how she had ended up giving birth to him in Bethlehem in a feeding trough or how the angel's message to the shepherd about Jesus would play out in the future, one thing was very, very clear. She was deeply treasured by God. That was very clear. It was pretty much undeniable because in the midst of all of this chaos, look at what had been said. Look at what had been brought to her. These messengers sharing this news. Hey, God knows what he's doing. And here's the good news about this child. And Mary knew, yeah, I'm seen by God. I'm safe with God. That word that is used here, we have translated as treasure. You know, the New Testament was written in Greek. That Greek word that we have translated as treasure is sune tere, sune tere. It means to keep something in mind. So what did Mary do? She kept all of this in mind. She meditated on this. She held, another way of saying it is she held it close to her. In her mind, she held it close to her. And this is what we're called to do on Christmas. We're called to hold this good news close. This is why we do it again and again, year after year. But it's not just meant to be a Christmas thing. It's an every single day thing. Look, when you continually treasure and keep in mind that God treasures and keeps you in mind, it radically changes you from the inside out into a more joyful and peaceful person. This is something that we're meant to every single day Wake up and treasure that you're treasured. Treasure being treasured. Pete Gregg, in his book, How to Pray, he tells this story, which we'll have on the screen. He says, an advertising executive became a Christian, but said that he was too busy to carve out a daily time of prayer, a daily time of just being alone with the Lord. It's easy for you, he told his new pastor. You have all the time in the world. But I can't fit anything else into my life. The pastor pushed back against the advertising executive's complaint with a gentle challenge. You know, he said, I've always managed to make time for the things I really value. That new believer went away and bought himself a really nice rocking chair, set it down in front of a window in his house, and began to get up just 20 minutes earlier each day to sit in it, read the Bible, and pray. As he maintained this simple daily rhythm, his wife and colleagues began to notice that he was becoming less scattered, more peaceful, and kinder. That rocking chair was becoming his thin place. Months turned into years. A daily discipline became a holy habit. And then one morning, as he sat there rocking, the Lord invited him to quit his job sell the family home, and relocate from Chicago to Colorado, where a church needed his help. It was a life-changing moment that launched his entire family into a new and remarkably fruitful season of life. Several years later, 
That successful executive was diagnosed with a particularly aggressive form of incurable cancer. But he continued to keep his appointments with God each morning in that chair. During his last remaining days, he found strength there in prayer for the hardest transition of them all. The day of the funeral dawned, and a friend found his grieving wife gazing at that rocking chair. What are you going to do with it now? He inquired. Oh, we're going to pass it down to our children and grandchildren, she replied without hesitation. I love to think of them sitting in it the way my husband did, unburdening their hearts, listening to the Lord, letting him shape and direct their lives. Look, Christmas did what? It turned an ordinary feeding trough into the place where heaven and earth meet. And Christmas has the potential to do the same thing to your couch when you wake up in the morning, to your front seat in your car when you drive to work, to the sidewalk where you walk outside, in your bed as you go to sleep at night. Do you realize that? The manger, what is it? It's just an ordinary little feeding trough. What is your chair at home? It's just an ordinary little chair. But it's not just an ordinary little feeding trough or an ordinary little chair. Because God wants to meet with you directly and personally. And as he meets with you, he wants you to, like this man who woke up 20 minutes earlier and just sat in his rocking chair and just savored how much God loved him day after day after day, God wants you to treasure being treasured. And we can only do that as we sit and wonder and awe and contemplation of his love for us. And that's something we'll talk about more next year. Contemplation, just sitting there, being with the Lord, silent with the Lord. Another way of putting it is looking at him, looking at you in love. And for me personally, during my quiet times in the morning, this is one of my favorite practices. One of my favorite ways to sometimes end my time with the Lord is just sitting there, just looking at him, looking at me in love, seeing him smiling at me. I can't literally see it, but I I look up and I know, yeah, he's smiling at me. He's looking at me in love. And when you start your day that way, that changes your day so drastically because all of us, we're doing what? We're living day-to-day for God's smile. We're living day-to-day for each other's smile. Until we're performing, we're acting, we're doing, we're running, we're hustling. And when you start the day knowing, I don't have to earn it. I just get to receive it. No matter what I do. I didn't do anything. I just slept. And I woke up and God was looking down at me in love. God wants us to treasure that we're treasured by him. Because of Christmas, we can treasure that we are treasured. Look, what I want you to see is that this story of Christmas wasn't just meant for the characters in this text only. It's not just for these people. It's for these people. It's for you. It's for us to experience. It's meant for all of us. Because of Christmas, we can join Mary by treasuring in our hearts that we are treasured in God's heart. 
Because of Christmas, we can join the shepherds by accepting the invitation to come and see the sign of God's love for us, Jesus. Because of Christmas, we can join the angels in praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Because of Christmas, we can join together in prayer right now. Let's, let's go ahead and do that. Let's pray this together. And we can pray these words written by Henry Nowen. I'm going to pray these words. And after I do so, um, we can spend time um, singing a Christmas carol together. But let's just pray these words. Lord Jesus, master of both the light and the darkness, send your Holy Spirit upon our preparations for Christmas. We who have so much to do seek quiet places to hear your voice each day. We who are anxious over many things look forward to your coming among us. We who are blessed in so many ways long for the complete joy of your kingdom. We whose hearts are heavy seek the joy of your presence. We are your people walking in darkness yet seeking the light. To you we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I will be up front if any of you would like to come down and uh, be prayed for and speak with me. Uh, and of course, if I'm occupied with someone, we have other people who are willing to come down and pray with you. But let's just hold space for the Lord by entering into this time of worship together. <clears throat>